You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The World Health Organization has officially declared coronavirus a global health emergency. There are now more than 17,000 confirmed cases, and as of this recording, over 350 people have died from the disease. This isn't the first time a deadly respiratory illness has caused this level of worry. If you were around in 2003, you probably remember SARS. Severe acute respiratory syndrome. And as new cases emerge, quarantines expand, and the disease spreads to North America, the consequences are multiplying. The virus hit the Canadian city of Toronto really hard, in part because health officials didn't expect it. Cameron Kahn saw that happen firsthand. I was just finishing my training in infectious diseases and public health and was moving back to Toronto to to start my career as an infectious disease physician and a scientist at one of the teaching hospitals. Patients with SARS started to show up at Cameron's hospital, and one of his colleagues got sick. It led to this outbreak in our city that overwhelmed our public health system. Healthcare workers were forced to wear more protection. Hospitals restricted visitors. Led to about 44 deaths. We had an outbreak that went on for four months. 400 became ill and 25,000 Toronto residents were placed in quarantine. Really just watch this tiny little virus cripple an entire city with millions of people in it. After the dust settled with the SARS outbreak, you know, there was an enormous amount of mental and emotional fatigue amongst the healthcare workforce. And I think the thing that came to my mind was, boy, let's not do this again. And it really dawned on me that we're going to have to be able to respond in an agile way. We're going to have to be using big data. We're going to have to be using advanced analytics like artificial intelligence. We're going to have to be leveraging every piece of information communication technology we have at our resources to literally spread knowledge around the world faster than the diseases spread themselves. What Cameron envisioned following the SARS outbreak, that turned into something real. And it ended up helping health officials detect the ongoing coronavirus outbreak. So today on the show, how artificial intelligence is being used to detect, track, and even predict how new diseases might spread. I'm Ariel Dimros. This is Reset. After the SARS outbreak in 2003, Cameron Kahn went on to found a company called Blue Dot. It launched in 2014 with the aim of continuously monitoring the web and other sources for potential outbreaks. When it finds something, Blue Dot sends a warning to its customers, which include public health officials and private companies. It was actually one of the first groups to pick up on the coronavirus outbreak. 
So we, on December 31st, picked up some reports in Chinese of a pneumonia that was associated with the uh, seafood uh, market in Wuhan, which also happens to sell other uh, live animals uh, besides seafood. Okay. So this was just a local uh, article published uh, in Chinese, uh, not coming from an official source like a government agency, but sort of local media that was uh, commenting on what was happening in, in Wuhan and using, you know, machine translation tools and, and essentially uh, our machine learning algorithms were able to, to recognize early uh, morning on December 31st that this had certain characteristics that were concerning, a respiratory illness in China associated with a live animal market, uh, those were really the same factors that led to the SARS outbreak back in 2003. So your model uses artificial intelligence. You, you mentioned machine learning. Let's get into the weeds a little bit here. What exactly does that mean? So what it means is there is a vast amount of, you know, unstructured data in all these various languages that has to be processed. So if we gave it to a team of humans to review, it would require a pretty large team and it would be incredibly labor intensive. And a lot of the questions that we're really looking for is just to kind of find the needles in the haystack to say, mm. this is about the heavy metal band anthrax. This is about an outbreak of anthrax. The Florida man has contracted a very rare and potentially deadly form of anthrax. Now, a machine will just pick up the, the keyword and won't know the difference. So what happens is our team of physicians and data scientists have sat down and thousands and tens of thousands of times have classified the information and said, this is important. We want to know about this. This looks like this is news of a real outbreak. The first case of Zika in Maryland. This is information about a public health intervention, like a vaccination campaign, but it's not about an outbreak. A mass vaccination campaign is about to get underway to stop diphtheria from spreading among... And this has nothing to do with infectious diseases. The word plague is being used in some way that has nothing to do with the plague. Ultimately, though, I think I made 10 mistakes. Let's call them 10 plagues. And after we have done that sufficient number of times, uh, we can develop algorithms that actually can essentially replicate or um, approximate human judgment. And you're searching through large amounts of data, right? What exactly are you looking at? You mentioned news reports. Am I missing anything else? Yeah, no, there, you know, we gather information on over about 100 different sources. Uh, I'll give you some examples are the surveillance data we talked about, official and unofficial information about infectious disease activity, data on flight patterns around the world, and not just flights, but passenger level movements around the world. But then we're also gathering information to understand context. I'll just give you an example. It's a pretty cold morning here in downtown Toronto. So if we had a disease that was uh, spreading here from another part of the world that's transmitted by mosquitoes, uh, it's not going to spread here uh, when it's minus 10 degrees. 
So we're also gathering information from satellites in real time, temperature and precipitation and vegetation, humidity, data on animal populations that may be necessary for an outbreak to be able to occur, demographics, uh, um, health system capacity, things like doctors, nurses per thousand people in the population, um, uh, economic and other factors. So it really helps us put into context um, what the potential risks are for one case uh, of an infection in a traveler to, to propagate and become 10 or 100 cases. For various political reasons in China, health authorities aren't always super transparent with information when it comes to outbreaks of this nature. Does your system get around that problem? Well, there will always be certain types of blind spots, but ultimately this is the whole premise of using unofficial information, local media, other blogs and forums and so forth, because those kinds of information sources are not going through the official channels. And so the idea there is perhaps that we may be able to pick up information earlier uh, through those particular channels. Do you think we are detecting these kinds of outbreaks fast enough? Are you satisfied? Is this the best that we can do? Well, there's always room for improvement, and uh, we know that these diseases move incredibly quickly. We're just going to have to move faster if we want to get in front of them. If we look back to 2003, the world didn't really even know what SARS was until it showed up in our cities and our hospitals. China, of course, this first started in southern China in Guangdong province in November. And the first that anyone from China even mentioned this was not until late February. And even then, all throughout Beijing, it was an enormous cover-up. And at least in the case of speaking here as, uh, you know, a Canadian, um, uh, we are, this time around, we are waiting for its arrival. So clearly we uh, are doing uh, many things better. Uh, but because we are talking about events that can have profound um, health and economic and social consequences, uh, we need to continuously be striving to move even faster. And the algorithm isn't perfect, right? From what I understand, you still have humans look at its findings to verify its conclusions. Well, look, we've always kind of felt that artificial intelligence, at least as it stands today, is, is really here to enhance human intelligence, not to replace it. Um, and what we're doing is having a machine perform kind of lower complexity tasks that are extremely labor intensive and time consuming and allowing humans to really, you know, use higher order uh, cognitive processes to, to understand, well, what do I do with this information? How should I um, act with this information? What decisions uh, could this inform? Um, so we really see, you know, artificial intelligence and human intelligence as being complementary, not really um, uh, AI replacing uh, human decisions. For, for various reasons right now, these types of outbreaks are happening more frequently. It has to do with, with lifestyles, the urbanization, the fact that people are traveling way more and much faster. Is your system enough to help us battle these diseases? It's a really great question. I'm glad you asked this. And I'm going to say it's it's part of the solution, but it's not clearly not the whole solution. Um, if we actually go upstream far enough, we have to actually recognize that, um, you know, Mother Nature is trying to tell us something here. 17 years ago, we had an outbreak that started in an, a market with live animals that were consumed, and it led to an outbreak of SARS around the world. And here we are 17 years later, and we are dealing with the same story again. 
again. So if we want to go far uh, enough upstream, and we should be, we first have to be asking ourselves, uh, you know, every time we are consuming wild animals, we're, we're playing with fire. Uh, and really, the kinds of tools that we're developing are really with better smoke detectors, if you will. But ultimately, um, it is the upstream questions and issues that we have to be confronting. Everything else that we're doing, vaccine development, better diagnostic tests, and so forth, are really around mitigating risks. But ultimately, we're, we're addressing the symptom, and I think it's incredibly important for all of us to be really looking head-on at the illness itself and what is it that is actually driving these outbreaks in the first place. Cameron Kahn is the CEO of Blue Dot. After the break, we'll talk some more about disease and artificial intelligence and those adorable mammals with the wings bats. This is Reset. Barbara Hahn, disease ecologist at the Cary Institute, How do you feel about bats? Oh, I think bats are amazing. Bats are really important ecosystem functions. They pollinate. They're incredibly important for the way that seeds move around. And they're adorable. I'm really glad you said that because I've been seeing a lot of bat blaming surrounding coronavirus. And I happen to love bats. So I want to know, are, are bats the source of this outbreak? So coronavirus has spilled over previously. And in the previous few outbreaks, they have been linked to bats. But... We've destroyed their habitats and made their food resources a little bit more scarce. And, you know, just the same as when you and I are stressed out and and we're not having healthy diets, bats are also subject to becoming sick from those things and possibly shedding virus that could potentially be infectious to humans. So I wouldn't blame the bats. I, I might actually just blame us. So we've just heard about the ways that AI is being used to track outbreaks once they actually happen in humans. Where do diseases of this type come from in the first place, generally speaking? Many diseases that are thought to spill over into humans come from wild sources. And that just means that the pathogen that causes these diseases persists in a wild host in nature. Okay, so a lot of these are animal sources. Yeah, so the animals have pathogens and parasites. And um, when there's frequent contact with animal hosts, humans come into contact with their pathogens and parasites. So a lot of these contact events don't lead to anything, even if we're exposed to a pathogen, a bacteria or a virus, the gears don't catch. Okay. It's a dead-end transmission event. Nothing happens. Sometimes the transmission event leads to a dead-end infection. So infection might actually happen in a human, but that human can't transmit it to another human. Mm. But in the current coronavirus situation, what has happened is the pathogen has spilled over from some unknown wild host, we think a bat, um, possibly through what we think is a bridge host. So possibly um, an animal reservoir that or an animal host that was sold in a wet market, for example, and it's entered a human and that it's caused disease in a human or it's caused the human to become infectious and therefore spreading the pathogen to other humans. So the spillover event went from animal to human from human to human, and now the, it's sort of 
human to human to human to human. <laughs> right. And that's what we call a zoonotic disease, right? A, a disease that starts in an animal and that it then becomes transmitted to humans and can spread that way. Right. I'm really glad that I, we're talking about this because in your lab, from what I understand, you actually look at which species are likely to carry new diseases and, and you make predictions about that, right? How do you make those predictions? Yeah, we make those predictions about which animals are likely to carry other diseases like the coronavirus by examining the features that they share in common. So you can think about it in terms of, let's give you a sort of an easy example, like if you're shopping for socks on Amazon. Socks come in many shapes and sizes, and you're really looking for a particular set of features. Like you want yoga socks, and you want them to have the little grippy things on the bottom. <laughs> in the same way, we train an algorithm to recognize the features of an animal that we know carries disease. Those features are important because they reflect a long evolutionary history of the animal contending with selection pressures from the environment, but also selection pressures from the pathogens and parasites that they've evolved with over a very long time. So when we train an algorithm to recognize the biological features of something that carries disease or even multiple diseases, we're really asking it to, to tell us what other species look like the carriers, mm -hmm. and why are those features the ones that are predictive? Okay, so does using AI to predict which animals are likely to carry disease that might actually impact humans, does this method actually work? Has it paid off? Yeah, we think that it has value. So we uh, have <laughs> experienced the dubious success of being correct in some of our predictions. Um, <laughs> the example I want to share is from the Ebola outbreak, not this most recent outbreak, but the one in 2015. Forty years after first striking fear with a painful and grotesque set of symptoms, the Ebola virus is back. Ebola, the subject of the 1995 movie Outbreak, has now killed at least 88 people in the West African countries of Guinea and Liberia. As the WHO and everybody, the global health community were mobilizing to sort of put this fire out, we ecologists were really curious about what we could make from the data that we had already collected over the past 40 some years of sampling and just trying really hard to find that needle in a haystack of which species are the, is, is this Ebola virus hanging out in between outbreaks. What we did was collected all of the data available for some 1,116 bat species on the planet and also collected data on any species that had ever tested positive for a filovirus. A filovirus is the group of viruses that include Ebola virus and other related viruses like Marburg. Wow, okay. We asked the algorithm to identify, well, what, what are the features of the bats that do carry filoviruses? There was one species that, you know, was ranked number five or something on our list, and we kind of you know, scratched our heads at it because its range was in China, which we've never had a filovirus outbreak in China. So we published the list. And six months later, a group that was doing surveillance work in the Yunnan province of China confirmed that that species did indeed carry um, a filovirus, and not just a filovirus, but a novel filovirus. I think it was lucky that we, that the validation of our results happened so quickly because um, what tends to happen in science, I think in, in basic science, and especially in the work that I do, is we make these predictions and we publish the paper, and then you kind of wait. 
because the science funding is patchy. And when Ebola virus goes away and nobody's paying attention to it anymore, there's not as much funding available. We're on to Zika virus now, or we're on to coronaviruses now. The thing that I'm that comes to mind as I hear you is, does this mean that this is that we could be able to predict which species may carry new diseases before those diseases ever reach humans and then and then potentially stop that transmission from happening? That's right. Um, that's exactly the focus of one of the projects that I'm um, involved in now that uh, looks at another group of bat-borne viruses called the Hanipa viruses. And the goal there is to make predictions like the ones that I've described, but also pair them up with high-frequency sampling. So we're looking at these populations and sampling them repeatedly over many years, you know, every month, and trying to figure out when all of the, the multiple layers align so that these bats are shedding virus at a time when you can tell what the environment is doing, you can tell where they were, um, you can get measurements of their body condition, and you can confirm that they are indeed shedding virus. And you can collect all of that information Information and also figure out what kinds of viruses are shedding because, of course, every virus that you replicate in, within even a single cell, they're all slightly different from each other. And some of those might have pandemic potential, whereas the vast majority of them will just won't have that potential to go human to human. So the goal of the project is really to take these AI methods and push them one step further by pairing them up with high-frequency field sampling and also other modeling tools that will allow us to make predictions and also then preempt the spillover by creating these therapeutics like transmissible vaccines, for example, that will stop the virus in its tracks and stop it from transmitting onward from the bat. I mean, that sounds great. But if that's the end game, what does it mean that you don't always have the funding you need to show that these algorithms work or to help them get better? I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't want to be doom and gloom here, but it's not a great situation, obviously. Um, I think when situations like this coronavirus rear their ugly heads, it's it's so it's kind of heart wrenching, right? Because as a scientist, and as, especially as somebody who sees the potential of AI and who sees what could be done, even with the data that we have in hand, to imagine the possibilities of what you could do with more data, because the global society has now recognize the importance of basic research, studying the environment and its inhabitants purely for the sake of understanding the world that we live in. And only by doing that can we really truly understand how to live better in this world, right? So mm. seeing the potential of what we could do and seeing the gap and then seeing this cycle happen over and over and over again is pretty disheartening. Mm -hmm. But I think that we just have to keep pushing, right? Like you have one success and then you keep pushing the envelope a little further. You keep applying for funding. You get another grant that helps you to study Hanipa viruses. You do what you can there and you just keep pushing forward. And I think eventually that's how science and progress happens generally, right? And everything. And that's how it's going to happen here too. It would certainly help to have more support, but um, I think those kinds of things are slow to change. Barbara Hahn is a disease ecologist at the Cary Institute. This is Reset, and I'm Ariel Zimros. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. 
We publish episodes three times a week, on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. We'll be back on Thursday. Later, nerds. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on home mom? <laughs> no. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.